0: The 2008 earthquake in China's Sichuan province killed more than 69,000 people and created a new kind of social order. As citizen's rushed to help, organized groups began to form, churches made care packages, and people shared what they had with neighbors. Citizens banded together to create solutions where the government hadn't yet responded. One scholar believes the Chinese government uses disasters like these as opportunities to identify and monitor those citizen helpers.
1: Before that, uh, you don't see too much civic activities uh, in China because the government would tightly control uh, the society. Uh, Any activities is uh, heavily monitored. But with a major earthquake, the government's capacity is being reduced. And so as the power vacuum appeared, people are actually more active uh, in associating with each other.
0: From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, a closer look at China's power. My first guest is Taiyi Sun, a professor of political science at Christopher Newport University. His working book project is Disruptions as Opportunity, Governing Chinese Society with Interactive Authoritarianism. Taiyi, you argue that one pathway for opening up China for more self-government may be the citizen groups that emerge during terrible national disasters. Give me your argument, What's happening there?
1: Yeah, so many people think that in an authoritarian country, uh, it is almost impossible to have a healthy civil society. Uh, But what we have witnessed in China uh, is that after major disasters like an earthquake, the rise of volunteerism, the associational behaviors could actually trigger the accumulation of social capital, which is the trust, the norms of reciprocity, the bonding as members uh, of organizations That could be created, um, and they facilitate community activities uh, acting uh, as nascent civil society.
0: And do you think that sort of emergence of these civic groups following national disasters has happened more recently than long ago?
1: Yeah, I think we can observe such uh, events almost after every major disaster that even uh, as uh, COVID uh, hit China, that people are trying to help each other out, form uh, informal organizations uh, just to uh, help the neighbor.
0: Especially what national disasters prior to COVID?
1: Well, the one that I pay a lot of attention to is the 2008 Wenchuan earthquake in the western uh, Sichuan province. It was a major earthquake uh, in Sichuan province with almost 70,000 people dead uh, with about 18,000 people missing, so probably also dead. And it also led to 15 million people being relocated. But with such a disaster, we witnessed the rise of volunteerism, community members helping each other out. And so later, some scholars uh, uh, even talk about 2008 being NGO year zero uh, or year of civil society of China.
0: What do you mean of civil society? What was there before that?
1: Um, So before that, uh, you don't see too much civic activities uh, in China because the government would tightly control uh, the society. Uh, Any activities is uh, heavily monitored. Uh, But with a major earthquake, the government's capacity is being reduced. And so as the power vacuum appeared, people are actually more active uh, in associating with each other. And so uh, here civil society, I mean activities happening in this space and the nascent Civil society emerging after those major earthquakes.
0: What do you mean by social capital?
1: Yeah, social capital is the relational resource that we have uh, that is based on the trust as well as the norms of reciprocity uh, within a community. And so the more we have, uh, the higher social capital uh, there is. So if you have a lot of friends, if you're a member of many uh, organizations, and if you borrow something from your neighbor uh, and uh, uh, they don't request you to write a contract. I see that as an indication of higher social capital.
0: But what do you mean about the emergence of social capital following disasters? Are, Are you saying that citizens have more social capital with their rulers or with one another?
1: Yeah, what I mean here is um, within the community, there is more accumulation of social capital. So just to give you an example, right? Uh, Immediately after the earthquake, people started to um, help each other, maybe even go to their neighboring villages to help people rebuild. And afterwards, they will play the Chinese game Mahjong together on a weekly basis. Uh, And so they maintain those ties with each other. uh, And so the trust is increased and the uh, connection within communities is uh, enriched.
0: That's interesting because it didn't occur to me they weren't already like that. Are you saying that is a fairly new phenomenon for people, that there has been, because of the national regimes, less trust? From citizen to citizen?
1: Well, there had always been some level of social capital, right? Uh, What I'm arguing here is that after these major disasters, it increased, that people associated with each other even more. They uh, built new relationships and they started trusting each other even more.
0: And how does that relate to the creation of a more civil society or more open society?
1: Yeah, so uh, I think social capital is the basic fabric of a robust civil society, right? So uh, in order for a healthy civil society to operate, you need to have citizens having relationships with each other so that when uh, civic engagement actions are required, they can come out together and either do community services or do protests together. Um, So if you don't know each other, you're on your own, right? And so that would not make it a condition to have civil society. So uh, I think having social capital is the prerequisite of having a healthy civil society.
0: Right. You also argue that the Chinese regime sometimes intentionally creates crises to cultivate new people to help out local governments. What do you mean by that? That's a really interesting theory.
1: Yeah, so uh, they don't necessarily create uh, these uh, crises or what I call institutional disruptions, uh, which rules are being altered uh, either by nature or by uh, the government. And during these disruptions, uh, sometimes we see, like in the earthquake, the government is incapacitated or the uh, uh, particular uh, ongoing norms in the community is different. In a typical authoritarian country, we may see the government cracking down on the society uh, during these moments because that's when they fear the most. In China, in history, most of the dynasties were toppled after major disasters, right, because uh, in China, the emperor is seen as the son of heaven. Uh, And so uh, when heaven is angry, when there are major disasters like flood or drought or earthquake, that means heaven is not happy with the ruler and it's time to change the ruler. So rulers are extremely wary uh, of major disasters happening. Uh, But what we have seen with this particular administration is that they utilize the opportunity of having major disasters um, so that they initially would tolerate civic activities and then they can identify who's actually those regime challenging actors who's going to cause trouble and who else is going to provide potential services to help the regime prolong its uh, ruling. And so doing uh, that, uh, they will be able to lower the cost of repression. They don't have to repress everybody, right? So uh, usually regime Hmm. challenging uh, uh, actors is a small minority of the society. So uh, you don't have to control everybody, uh, but you can also identify those who are potentially helping the regime survive.
0: Give me a for instance where that has happened.
1: Back to the earthquake example, right? So uh, you have community organizations emerging immediately afterwards and they tackle poverty. They help the seniors and children. And sometimes they uh, run these organizations with democratic norms. They use Robert's rule to make decisions. But overall, the government sees these organizations as helping stimulating economic growth and uh, sometimes uh, maintaining stability. Because uh, if those seniors are not helped, uh, if the labors are not being paid, uh, or if other challenges are not met, maybe they'll directly come to the government and uh, protest. Right. So with these organizations present, the government saw somebody else who could shoulder the responsibility, and often they can shoulder the blame.
0: You're right, the government also does something very Machiavellian. They deliberately allow anti-regime language for a while just to see whether real opposition emerges so they can shut it down and identify it. Yeah.
1: So remember, during these uh, uh, institutional disruptions, it's also an opportunity for the government to train its regime stability task force, right? So another case I mentioned in my upcoming book is about an uprising of ride-sharing drivers because it is a major gray area in Chinese economy uh, that they challenged the existing taxi industry they also offer better cars than typical taxis. And so you have those government officials, transportation officials, who would uh, basically practice entrapment. They will pretend they're customers uh, and uh, take a ride. And afterwards, they will show their ID and want to find the drivers, just like Uber, like Uber drivers. Um, and so those drivers, they started organizing guerrilla protests, right? Whenever there's an official trying to find them, They will just share their location and immediately uh, those who are in the neighborhood would drive to this place and uh, protest. And often they're able to drive this official out without having to submit a fine. Sometimes those protests can be huge with thousands of people gathering at a crossroad trying to block the traffic. And so these are managed Uh, testing grounds for the government to control society, but it's also a learning opportunity for the society as well, um, that they learn tactics to protest smartly uh, so that they don't get cracked down every time.
0: So the strategy in China of the government identifying helpers and weeding out the people that aren't, do you see parallels in the U.S.?
1: Well, I think uh, in the US, it's a much different story because in a liberal democracy, you are allowed to operate and civic activities are encouraged. And this is the main argument of de Tocqueville's democracy in America. It's the robust civic activities being tolerated here that's creating the healthy democracy in the U.S. Now, what worries me uh, as I see parallels between China and the United States uh, is that partisan politics sometimes are pushing these organizations out right? So uh, you have uh, organizations on the political spectrum uh, that are either on the far left or on the far right that are being directly attacked by the other side. Um, And so it's probably not the executive branch uh, that's doing the censoring or differentiating the organizations, but it's the partisan groups that are trying to attack each other that's creating a more polarized society. I think this is a worrying sign.
0: Taiyi Soon, this is so important. Thank you for talking with me and with good reason.
1: You are very welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Taiyi Soon is a professor of political science at Christopher Newport University. His working book project is Disruptions as Opportunity Governing Chinese Society with Interactive Authoritarianism. Tensions between America and China have been high for generations, and Taiwan remains a central part of that conflict. My next guest is Spencer Baggage. He's a professor of international studies at Virginia Military Institute and director of the National Security Program there. He's also a senior fellow at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Spencer, why are U.S.-China relations so tense and seemingly ready to burst at the seams? What makes the U.S. enemy number one in China's eyes?
2: There are a couple of things that are happening simultaneously. The number one thing is obviously the dramatic increase in China's economic power over time, which has given it an ability to project um, increasing military power deeper and further away from its shores. So that's on the one hand the United States and China are having to adjust to a new power reality in certainly in the in the western Pacific but China's economy has grown overall to such an extent that China's becoming capable and able to exercise power far more effectively on on a global stage. The second thing is that China's objectives seem to be fundamentally far more ambitious than they were in in, in the past. When when China first began rising, uh, as a result of um, Deng Xiaoping's uh, reforms, liberal liberalization of the economy, his mantra was really uh, it was it was called um, you know hide your strength and bide your time. China was much more cautious, less uh aggressive, not belligerent and was was willing to reap the rewards of participating in an open and and liberal international trade regime and and and, and political system. And since that time, China's leader in particular, Xi Jinping has taken steps and and, and adopted a, a much more ambitious and uh China-centric Approach to, um, to Chinese um, foreign policy and grand strategy. What it seeks in the world is a, an order that is much more conducive to uh, China's conception of itself as, as a great power and is m- much less conducive to the maintenance of, a, of the liberal system that the United States and its allies and partners have, have worked deciduously to create.
0: And why do you think that is why isn't she content to hide his strength and bide his time and reap his lucrative financial rewards through business?
2: The number one and most important reason is that China is an authoritarian state and it has significant problems maintaining a sense of legitimacy or or a foundation of legitimacy based on straightforward communist principles. This is one of the challenges or or, or dilemmas that were associated with Deng Xiaoping's reforms. As soon as China started adopting a more capitalist-oriented growth strategy, it became incumbent upon Chinese leaders to demonstrate continued and perpetual economic growth. But the problem is, is that growth rates are never linear. They're never straightforward. You can't just go up, uh, keep going up forever. And after a time, you're going to reach a, a, a plateauing. And in many respects, Xi Jinping has come to the realization that The growth rates in the past are not possible now, and they're highly unlikely in the future.
0: Do you think Xi's current interest in retaking Taiwan has more to do with economics or fear of the U.S. proximity to the China coast?
2: I love that question, and it's a really tough one to to answer. If you take Xi Jinping at his word that Taiwan is nothing more than a rogue province and as a democracy constitutes a straightforward and, and direct threat to the standing of the Chinese Communist Party. If that is true, then it's not about economic interests, and it's not about economic gain. And China will be much more willing to take actions and and and, in, and engage in coercion and heaven forbid you know military intervention in, in attempts to to take Taiwan to, and to bring it to heel and to bring it back into the fold, if we take Xi Jinping squarely at, at his words. Now, of course, Taiwan is not just any old island located close to the Chinese mainland. It is a booming and thriving technological economic treasure trove. And Xi Jinping has to understand, and the Chinese Communist Party has to understand that too heavy and too strong an approach toward China has real possibilities of killing the goose that lays the golden eggs. Now, having said all that, they are quite concerned that 90 miles or so off the coast of China is a significant island that is not in China's hands, but because of its relatively close association with the United States poses a significant strategic challenge. Taiwan is very much the cork in the bottle that kind of hems China in. China's coastlines are surrounded by islands, an island chain that uh, makes Ingress and egress to the Western Pacific, incredibly difficult for a Navy to traverse and especially difficult when the countries that are on those that island chain are all closely associated with the United States. Japan, um, Taiwan, uh, the Philippines sometimes, that, 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 that one's a little dicey. Nevertheless, if Taiwan... Were to become a wholly owned subsidiary of uh, the People's Republic of China, that would give the Chinese unfettered access to the Western Pacific. So that is a concern. There, there, there are a number of factors: economic, ideological, and geo geopolitical um, factors that are all pushing China at this very moment to be very, very concerned about Taiwan's status.
0: What does it play for us? If we simply stepped back and said, okay, there was a period after the fall of the Berlin Wall where America became the unilateral international superpower, we're not any longer. China is the offsetting side of that, and we can retreat a little bit to acknowledge that.
2: Mm -hmm. If you take seriously the American conception of what its national security requires— that is a measure of forward presence, having our military, our Navy, our, our our Army, our Marine Corps, stationed far, far away from the United States. American defense of the Western Hemisphere, in many respects, begins at Taiwan.
0: So is it America's posture to signal to Xi and the Chinese leader's we're not going to interfere with what you're doing there, but we draw the line here at Taiwan and these other nations.
2: It's tough for us to say it as explicitly as you just did, Sarah. And and, and the reason is, is because the American policy of what we call strategic ambiguity – we've muddled through in in essentially the following way. We don't explicitly, have historically, have not called Taiwan an independent country. We have not explicitly said that we will go to war to defend Taiwan under these particular uh, conditions, but we do reserve the right to provide arms and ammunition and all of the types of things that uh, the Taiwanese would need to defend themselves. Now, for a very long time, that posture has worked well enough. We've had crises in the past, and they have been weathered, sometimes with, with significant difficulty. But you know, at, the, at the end of the day, that strategic ambiguity has gotten the United States and China a long way. The real question, though, and this is the one that that I think is occupying the minds of a lot of folks in Washington and a lot of a lot of people who who are thinking about the future of this relationship, is whether or not it is necessary for the United States to uh, to drop this this approach uh, of strategic ambiguity in ways that are conducive to uh, taiwanese um, security
0: What if China just took Taiwan by surprise, just reached out? And grabbed it militarily.
2: That's the nightmare scenario. That, that, that That's the nightmare scenario. It, it un, Under those conditions, um, we would have to confront some very, very painful and terrible choices. Um, if if it were the case that the United States were committed to reversing a a snatch and grab operation by China, we would have to think very, very hard about three things. Number one, what would the state of uh, U.S.-China economic relations be? And If we were to adopt a policy of uh, hardcore economic sanctions along the lines that we are currently taking uh, with respect to Russia, the global economy would be dealt a significant significant blow. The American economy would suffer greatly china 's economy would suffer greatly but our but but the economies of, of our friends and allies would be would be shaken substantially so that's problem number one. Problem number two is how would the United States respond with its conventional military forces? would we seek to fight our way? into the water surrounding China? And would we mount an attempt to rescue Taiwan from an invasion? Once we start considering that, then of course we need to face the reality of the fact that both of these countries are nuclear armed. Once you start thinking in those terms, then a snatch-and-grab operation can quickly and easily become a question of national survival.
0: What should Taiwan be doing to diffuse tensions like this or maybe make it less appealing for a Chinese takeover?
2: I think politically, Taiwan needs to walk a very, very fine line. Avoid taking steps that are known to be highly provocative to the Chinese, right? So a uh, de jure uh, declaration of... um, of independence uh, and, and and national sovereignty, um, we know for a fact that that would that would cause significant problems for the Chinese. And the second thing that the Taiwanese, I think, need to invest in heavily, are um, the types of weapons that make it the most unattractive target possible. And I think a prickly porcupine would be the the, the type of animal metaphor that, that I would go with here.
0: But that's what China wants to avoid. That is provocative.
2: You're absolutely right. Having said that, it's probably less provocative than a Taiwan that would insist on building weapon systems that could project power onto the Chinese mainland. Right, so so if if China, I'm sorry, if Taiwan has a choice, um, it should invest much more heavily into in, in defensive weapons, the types of things that kind of stop at the water's edge that would make a uh, a, a an invasion unattractive to uh, to the Chinese uh, navy and, and and army. At the end of the day, though, I think if anyone were asking me, um, I I would recommend humbly that the Taiwanese avoid provocations like declaring independence. And I, and I don't think there's there's really uh, much appetite at the highest levels in, in Taiwanese politics for that. Um, but a full commitment to a defensive posture, I, I, I think that th- that is one of the bigger things that uh, the Taiwanese could do for themselves to enhance their security.
0: Spencer Backage, thank you for talking with me and with good reason.
2: Thank you very much, Sarah. This has been truly wonderful.
0: Spencer Backage is a professor of international studies at Virginia Military Institute and director of the National Security Program there. He's also a senior fellow at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. The first Resonate Podcast Festival takes place October 14 and 15 in Richmond, Virginia. The workshops and performances feature Sharon Mashihi of Appearances and Nick Vander of Love and Radio resonatepadfest.com. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. As a child, Dennis Lowe used to bicycle through rice fields in Taiwan and then watched as Taiwanese technology parks replaced the rice fields. Years later, he saw images of that bygone countryside in films like Yellow Earth and City of Sadness, and he knew he was seeing much more than just cinema. Dennis Lowe is a professor of English at James Madison University, and he says these films offer a unique archive of the vanished Taiwanese and Chinese countryside.
3: So I first encountered these films when I was a college student in the Bay Area at Stanford. Um, I was taking several film studies classes, and one of the film movements I immediately uh, was attracted to were the film movements coming out of Taiwan and China in the 1980s and 1990s called the Taiwan New Cinema and also the fifth generation Chinese cinemas. Collectively, they're called the New Chinese Cinemas. And the reason why I was really engrossed by these films um, was because to me, they were more than just works of art. Uh, They were more than just beautiful works of filmmakers, really innovative, they were all that. Um, but they also felt so authentic to me because I did grow up predominantly in Taiwan. Uh, my parents moved back to Taiwan when I was around five or so. And Taiwan at the time was building up its new semiconductor industry. When I first was there, there were rice paddies everywhere. There were rice fields. And I remember riding my bike down the the rice fields and occasionally falling into the mud and racing my hmm. um, neighborhood friends that way. There was just this lovely chaos of bicycles and ice cream vendors and scooters. It was it was very lively, but as the science park grew, we saw. Sp- starting really just rapidly in the 1990s. One skyscraper after another coming out, luxury apartment buildings. It looks like a totally different world now. You can't even see the sky that easily from my house anymore. Just surrounding us are these thirty-five, 40 level towers with funny sounding names like Facebook 2.0. <laughs>
0: So you discovered films by a group of Chinese language filmmakers from the 1980s and 90s that were made around the same time you were seeing those rice fields disappear. Tell me about these filmmakers and the films they were making.
3: Um, so the movement in China is known as the fifth generation and sixth generation Chinese cinemas Um, They were shot by the first generation of filmmakers to have graduated um, from the Beijing Film Academy after the end of the Cultural Revolution. And these were filmmakers who had huge, outsized expectations of what to find in the countryside. Because in much of revolutionary literature, which is the literature of the Communist Party throughout the Cultural Revolution and even before that, since the founding of the PRC, the People's Republic, has always placed the countryside on a pedestal, right? That this was the place where Chinese authenticity resided. This was where Chinese traditions resided. And more importantly, this is where the workers, the laborers uh, toiled in the fields and sacrificed their own comfort for the betterment of the nation. So they went to the countryside with these lofty expectations to to find this kind of epic, grandiose landscape. But what they discovered instead was something totally different from that. In the 1980s, China was making tremendous steps towards reforming its formerly socialist economy, and it was starting to embrace um, economic development ideas that were very much in line with neoliberal capitalism. And part of this push to build rebuild China as a pseudo-capitalist society was to really pour resources into its city centers, but a lot of this came at the expense of the countryside this was the countryside that these filmmakers encountered. So Taiwan was urbanizing and modernizing even before, 10 years, 20 years before China was. And as a result, we saw a very similar kind of migration pattern of those living in the countryside, moving to the cities, really in the 70s. But it wasn't until this more liberal, this more open period in the late 1980s and 1990s, that filmmakers were actually allowed to create portraits of the countryside that was less than glamorous, right? So um, we all know that Taiwan is a multi-party democracy today, but it wasn't the case. Martial law was not lifted until 1989, in fact. And until 1989, Taiwan was more or less a single-party society led by an authoritarian regime.
0: Is one of the arguments you make about these films that inadvertently or deliberately, they have become an archive of how Taiwan and China and other Asian areas looked before they were rapidly urbanized?
3: I would absolutely say so, yes. And I call these shooting locations um, living museums. These are shooting locations at the time in the 1980s and 1990s, that were not tourist destinations. They were not landmarks that all the urban residents were flocking towards. Uh, They were places that were just on the outskirts of town and seen as kind of the boondocks, right? But these filmmakers found that the largest social changes were indeed occurring in these areas. Um, So absolutely, they have an archival function in recording that moment in history,
0: Was that what they were setting out to do? Or did that happen as they were shooting reels and reels of tape?
3: A big part of the intentionality behind that was they felt that so much emphasis was being given to the urban. Uh, So they did intentionally set out to the countryside to give it more visibility, yes.
0: Name a handful of the films that have caught your attention the most.
3: Of course. So from the mainland Chinese side... Um, the works of director Chen Kaige, his earliest directorial feature. um, Yellow Earth is a good example of one. King of Children is another favorite. Um, King of Children and Yellow Earth are basically both stories about communist cadre soldiers uh, traveling down to the countryside uh, to learn from the peasants, right, to um, learn to become like a peasant. But what they discover at the end is that they really don't know much about the peasants and that their ideas of identity and nationhood are sometimes conflicted with those of the peasants. These are films that are an exercise in becoming more humble, right, about one's own understanding of identity. On the Taiwanese side, um, films such as City of Sadness by Ho Xiaoshan, and in fact, his entire trilogy of films known as the Taiwan Trilogy, City of Sadness in 89, Uh, The Puppet Master in 92, and Good Men, Good Women in 1995. Um, This is his uh, sort of love, you know, for Taiwan's countryside really pronounced on the screen. These films, a very interesting sort of backstory behind it, is that even though they're seen as the canonical films of Taiwanese history as represented On cinema screens, turns out that a huge percentage of those scenes were actually shot in mainland China at the time. So 1989, as I mentioned, was the end of martial law in Taiwan. It was the end of single-party authoritarian rule. It was also a time of thaw. Uh, very briefly, right, as as we know, uh, between Taiwan and China. And for the first time since the end of the Chinese Civil War, well, not really the end, but, you know, a stalemate, let's put it that way, um, Taiwanese and Chinese families were allowed to see each other again, long-lost family members who had been divided by the Civil War. They were allowed to reconvene in Hong Kong. So Ho Xiaoxin applied for a travel permit on the guise of visiting family members, Uh, because he was originally from southern Guangdong province, uh, a southern Chinese province right across the Taiwan Strait. And there he was hoping to collaborate with local mainland Chinese film crews to capture scenes of the countryside that, in his opinion, looked more like Taiwan in the 1940s than Taiwan does today. And that just goes to tell you how much Taiwan has changed, even by the 1980s, to the point that Ho felt rural China looked more like 1940s Taiwan. Now this idea of shooting important scenes with cast and crew members all there actually fell apart because of the um, political sensitivity surrounding the Tiananmen Square incident. So eventually he ended up only shooting a couple of large establishing shots of settings, but with none of the major cast and crew members inside. Um, And so some of the most iconic images of the uh, fishing ports in City of Sadness turn out actually to be shots from southern China.
0: How would you contrast what has happened so recently in Taiwan and in the cities and countryside of China to what America experienced during the great land grab and the loss and settling of the great American West?
3: There's always been this sense in Chinese art and literature that the countryside is a source of that which is authentic, that which is sincere. Um, the birthplace in many ways of traditional Chinese culture. And so in these films, you really see a sense of melancholy and a sense of lament, right? That not only is the wilderness or nature disappearing, but it's the culture and the traditions and the value systems that disappear along with it, right? I think as opposed to American Westerns, there's a real celebration of the possibility of discovering something new. There's the celebration of Manifest Destiny, for instance. I would say if in China, there's a sense of nostalgia that tints all those films, in Hollywood Westerns, it's a sense almost of excitement, right? Um, and in China, they like to contrast right. themselves with American directors by saying, well, America is a very young country. It's very new. It's like a toddler. It is excited about everything, about possibility. But we are an ancient civilization rooted in the countryside. Uh, we are nostalgic of the past and what we have lost.
0: Dennis Lowe, this is so interesting. Thank you for talking with me. Thank you for having me. Dennis Lowe is a professor of English at James Madison University. His book is The Authorship of Place, a Cultural Geography of the New Chinese Cinemas. Women all over the world have been quilting for generations, and my next guest has explored the rich patterns of quilts of Southwest China. Li Jingzan is a folklorist who teaches at George Mason University. Li Qing, you and a colleague have created a book and exhibit focused on the rich tradition of quilting in southwest China. Who are the women who made these quilts? And tell me a little bit about the people in southwest China.
4: Yeah, they are the women from the many different ethnic backgrounds. Southwest China is one of the most culturally diverse region in China. The quilts are made by people from these many different ethnic groups. Very rich documentations uh, accompanied them, like the place where the quilts are collected, as well as the stories of the quilt makers.
0: Right. Quilting is not like an industry, it's not like people were cranking these out en masse. They really are so individual woman by woman, family by family, right? Yes, they are. Each
4: quilt might have special significance for the people who make them. One of our featured uh, artists, a quilt maker from Guangxi, she's a younger generation. She's in her 30s. She learned all the techniques of making quilt, right, and and also cultural meanings and all the all the motifs patterns used um, on textiles. But she's my generation. She went to school and later on she was studying in the one of the biggest cities and become a tour agent. But. After she got married, she quitted her job in a tour agency. And then she sort huh. of like continuing this community tradition, like baking a quilt for her baby when she was pregnant. She was really creative. Uh, this is more common huh. for the younger generation, They inherit a lot of traditions, but they also try to express themselves in a more innovative way, right? So she combined traditional motifs um, on her quilt, but she also created this very unique pattern called dog teeth that she puts on the border of the quilt. So in the local beliefs, people think that the dog teeth can protect children. So there's the local custom of putting dog teeth or the dog hair under the pillow of children um, so that this can help ward
0: off the evil spirit. Oh, I love (laughs) that. Yeah, she
4: innovatively...
0: Did you fall in love with her quilt or her story first?
4: I fell in love with both. I was like fascinated by, by the patterns and the quilt and the color. So she uses a very colorful fabric. She's using the colors that were conventionally popular among her ethnic group, the strong ethnic group. They use the vibrant colors like red, yellow, green, blue. But I was also fascinated by her story as well. Like she's of my age. I'm always amazed by the, a lot of uh, handcrafts made not only by the older generations, but by people of my own generation or younger generations. Share with me
0: another of the stories and the quilts.
4: Yeah, I think I can share a story of older generation. She's also from Guangxi, born in the 1950s. So she's of my parents' generation. In their community, they have the tradition of gifting daughters a quilted when they marry. She has two daughters, both educated and they work in other places uh, in the cities. So their children don't have the social condition to inherit like the local tradition, but still she made the um, uh, quilted back covers. The Chinese quilt is a single layer. Back cover, you put comforter
0: inside. You're saying the Chinese quilt is more like what we call a duvet cover. Yes. Where you insert the quilt.
4: Right, but it doesn't take less labor (laughs) to make it.
0: It still takes a very long
4: time and a lot of effort. So she made quilt for her children as a memento for her own handcraft. It's also because she believed that like the fabric... It's good for for your health. It's the hand-woven cotton cloth. So she she believes that yes. that this is natural material also it's dyed from the natural pigment such as indigo. She she said this will keep you cool in the summer and warm in the winter.
0: There's also a tradition that I've heard of in American-made quilts where women will seek fabrics from all the family members, piecing together the love that comes from special cloths from each family member to make the quilt.
4: Yes, correct. So we call that kind of quilt bai jia bei. So like 100 household bed <laughs> cover. Yes. Uh, not only quilt, there were also clothes, like children's clothes uh, made in that way. So you get a piece of fabric from each household to make a jacket. So we call that 百加一. Um, it's highly symbolic. <laughs> so uh, it really like symbolize the the community's blessing for the newborn baby.
0: What did you learn about the similarities and differences between traditional American-made quilts? And quilts from this region? I mean they use the same technique
4: of piecing clothes together. I know that in the United States uh, there are also the and there's also the tradition of like passing down the quilt from one generation to another, right? So there's like the meaning of family tradition, right? That's the same in China. But we're Also see something that's unique to Chinese quilts for other household items and clothes. So they use that technique for their skirt or for their shirt. The most widely used quilt with multi-layer is for the baby carrier or we call like baby sling. So in Southwest China, traditionally people use baby carrier to carry their babies around, especially like when they travel or when they do like household work and when they do farming work. They carry babies on their back. So this is a very important item. Usually like the grandmother, they make a baby carrier for their grandchildren. Sometimes it's not the quill maker who cut the patterns, they buy it from people who specialize in making paper cutting patterns. Many of the motifs, like they were related to people's living environment and their history. One example is the butterfly. In China, it means love. But in some ethnic communities, it also have other special meanings. So one example is the Miao people, they regarded butterfly as their ancestors. There was a butterfly, so she was like fell in love with the bubbles on the river. So they got married and they gave birth to, to dragons and, uh, and the other ancestors of the Miao people. So the patterns, they, they
0: are specific to each ethnic group's. I know that you are a folklorist and don't have a tradition of quilting in your family but were you inspired to try your hand at it Yeah I am yeah
4: So when I traveled in southwest China we stayed some time with a family so the grandmother gifted me one of her paper cutting so I brought that paper cut with me and um, have been thinking about like yeah doing embroidery based on that pattern yeah but i i need a, <laughs> <laughs> i need something to motivate me to do it maybe organize
0: <laughs> a quilting circle <laughs> yeah well li Jin, thank you for talking with me and with good reason yeah thank you for having me lee Chen Zan is a folklorist who teaches at George Mason University. The first Resonate Podcast Festival takes place October 14 and 15 in Richmond, Virginia. The workshops and performances feature Sharon Mashihi of Appearances and Nick Vanderkolk of Love and Radio. ResonatePodfast.com Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, Pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, UVAhealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Costo are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.